It's no surprise that updating the electricity grid today will make for a better tomorrow. Increased self-sufficiency is just one of the benefits. The Great Grid upgrade will also boost the economy and create new green jobs. And best of all, you can continue doing the things you love, like watching the latest epic nature documentary or listening to this podcast while caring for the planet too. Find out more at nationalgrid.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It takes a lot of hard work to make it look easy. This Mother's Day, Duluth Trading Co. can help you give her something that keeps up. Whether you prefer to shop online or in-store, Duluth has a motherload of gear, goods, and gifts to keep her comfortable and capable, no matter what needs doing. With Duluth's problem-solving details and legendary durability to boot, you'll finally be mom's favorite again. Check out DuluthTrading.com for all your Mother's Day gifting needs. Hello and welcome to the BBC Countryfile magazine podcast, the podcast as we call it, where you can escape into the countryside for a weekly wild adventure. My name is Fergus Collins and I'm the editor of the magazine and host of this podcast. Before we start, I'm delighted to say that the podcast has been shortlisted by the PPA, the Oscars of the publishing industry for podcast of the year. So we'll find out later this summer if we've won, which would be brilliant. Uh, but we're very excited about being nominated in the first place. So that's lovely. For now, though, come with us to the Scottish Isle of Seal to meet poet, novelist and man of wild places, Kenneth Stephen, for a taste of what island life is like and to meet the local creatures. Plus, if we're lucky, to hear some of his wonderful verse. And I'd like to say that his poetry collection, The Spirit of the Hebrides, has been shortlisted for the Highland Book Prize 2020. I'm recording this afternoon from my studio and I'm conscious of just how privileged I am to be doing so. This is usually, ironically enough, my place of self-isolation. It's I'm the only place, apart from my partner Christina occasionally, I'm the only person to be here. Otherwise, it's a beautiful, empty space, which is what I, it's my only requirement really as a writer, I I think I'm very blessed in that respect that I really don't need a great deal. I have a wonderful library around me in the studio space, which is above a garage. Um, but apart from those books, most of which I don't refer to in the course of a writing session here, most of the time all that I require is solitude. Solitude and quiet and paper and pen. Paper and pen are at the centre of my life. As I say, it's uh, I'm all the more conscious of that self-isolation because we are now self-isolated through coronavirus. And the world becomes has become, for all of us, 
each one of us a very different place. So in a sense, it's concentric circles. It's a different place of self-isolation than it was, but it remains the same. And today I'm choosing to be here to record, as well as to be in isolation. I'm conscious of the fact that usually, although it's a place of silence inside, um, the one thing that disturbs me, disturbs being in inverted commas, are birds. Because I need to give some sense of where this studio is. We are privileged enough to live on an island, the Isle of Seal, which is on the edge of the Inner Hebrides on the west coast of Scotland. But the Isle of Seal is special in that it's linked to the mainland by a bridge. So about five minutes north of us, at the very top of the island, its northeast corner, it's linked to mainland Scotland, the west coast, by a rather lovely humpback bridge. Under it, under that bridge, uh, flows a slither of grey water, which I suppose is theoretically a bit of Atlantic. So the bridge became known in early times uh, most magnificently, most grandly, grandiosely actually, as the bridge over the Atlantic. Um, And for that reason, um, it's the source of, of tourism every every year, every summer. I suspect tens of thousands come to Seal um, to see this bridge. And I suspect that a good number of them, I have to admit, will go away somewhat disappointed. Let's leave that as it is. So <clears throat> I want to my task is to describe where we are and to give some picture since this is through the medium of sound, to give some picture of the place where where we are. Seal is not shaped as many of the inner and outer Hebridean islands are to do with geology, ancient geology. Uh, Most of them lie at an angle on the map, um, facing from, as it were, northeast to southwest on that trajectory. If you think about the way that the Great Glen, which splits the highlands effectively from the lowlands, is shaped, it's on that same, it's on that same, it's at that same angle. The islands are at that angle. Many of them. But not all. And certainly not the Isle of Seal, which is a, a rather messy shape. It's a strange blob. Um, a blob with a bridge. <laughs> that feels adequate reasonably adequate, if a little harsh. To give some greater sense of that, rather than just that um, rather mean um, shorthand, um, it lies, it's about three miles long, it's probably about the same in breadth. Um, The east coast, the east coast lies, of course, close all the way to the mainland of Scotland, to the main bit of the west coast. At the very top, as I've suggested, 
as I've tried to describe, it's only a matter of, I don't know, 75 yards, 100 yards, whatever a yard is, from that topmost bit of seal to the other side, um, to the wooded promontory that lies on the mainland. Seal then, as one goes down that east coast, seal distances itself a little bit from the mainland. So there's a bigger channel of water. But that's what it is, effectively. It's just a channel of water that separates mainland from island. It just widens a bit. That bit, then, is fairly straight. It's got indentations, inevitably enough. It's the west coast that's more more exciting, in a way, in terms of its geography. There are little bits of, of bay... Um, although there's no sand here, not one, not one fleck of it. Um, there are little bits of, of of stony bay, made of composed always of slate, because that's the main rock here, and what the island and neighbouring islands became famous for in earlier times was the mining, the presence of slate, and therefore the mining of slate. So there are little tiny bays and rather. Yeah, rather nondescript shores. That's how I would describe them. They're not beaches. And close to us on this east side of the island, there's a little bay, which is, again, entirely composed of broken fragments of of slate. And there is a bay, a shallow bay. You can see that it's it's not got much depth to it, even when you've gone out a good way. What else is a well to the north of us? Um, there's a little lochen, um, and that's most important to our as far, as far as a source of wildlife and wildlife inspiration is concerned. It is a lochen. That's how it would be described in Gaelic. Um, its its nickname its the affectionate nickname that's given to it by the islanders, and I don't know how old this name is, is Teddy's Pond. And Teddy's Pond, what's significant about it is that it's joined to the sea by a channel of water, a tidal channel of water. So twice a day that ebbs and flows. And I suspect, we suspect, that that's why it's such a rich source of of life, um, of nourishment to creatures of all kinds. We know, for example, that there are otters who visit. It would naturally enough be a place for them. We haven't yet seen one. Um, and all manner of bird life. And I think particularly, I come back to the fact that the the geese are normally flying about my studio which is one one story up above the ground um, and with a view to the to the north. Normally, as I say, I would be hearing in the eight, ten minutes since I've started this recording, I would doubtless have been hearing the familiar sound of grey lag geese as they flew around the studio. And they've been flying ever more um, restless, restless, anxious. Uh, knowledge of the journey ahead of them in their wings, as it were. They knew that the time for their 
spring return to Iceland, to Mývatn and to nesting was at hand. The skies today are silent and the waters are silent because the grey geese have gone. In these more recent times of climate change, not all the grey geese, not all the grey lag, do make that migratory journey to and from Iceland. Some perhaps are confused by change in temperature and remain here on the west coast, on the islands and on the mainland. But still, the most, for the most part, they depart for, for Iceland and for their summer for their summer quarters and for for nesting. But we feel their absence. They're there every morning um, on on the water. And they're there um, on the muddy bit of moorland, which almost surrounds, doesn't quite surround the house, but it's certainly on several sides of the house. And that's where the, the geese often are. It's interesting to see, too, birds of a feather do indeed flock together. And although the grey lags stay in their small groups by the water and in the fields, closer to our house, directly to the west, there are often um, clumps, as it were, of Canada geese, and they do not mingle. Sometimes, occasionally, we will smile ironically and see two clusters, two very distinct clusters of geese in a field, one composed entirely of grey lag, the other composed entirely of Canada's. But ne'er the twain shall meet. And in that corridor of wildscape just to the west of our house, the corridor that I've been describing where the Canada's often, often sit and often roost at night, um, there have been wonderful, wonderful sightings of a marsh harrier over the last, I don't know, 10 days, perhaps a fortnight. Um, and one Sunday morning, when we were coming out of the back door of the house on our way to church, there I managed, it was sheer luck, the way these moments are, I caught sight of um, an edge, a tawny edge of of bird, very low in the sky, just really above perhaps ten or fifteen feet above the above the swamp ground to the to the west of us, and we watched it immediately. Christina rushed for her camera and managed to get one or two reasonable reasonable shots of it i don 't think we would have paid much attention to it had we not known. Um, from from local enthusiasts, local ornithologists, that there was a marsh harrier about. Um, and often we do hear of such things, as many of us will do these days, via Facebook, in one way or another, via, via social media. Um, and so we were already waiting to look out for it. Because normally in that spot... What we see instead, because it's it's wonderful ground for harriers, obviously, and what we have seen in the past is a, a hen harrier. And we know that a pair of hen harriers comes through here. We love to see them because we know just how desperately persecuted they have been and are, remain tragically to this day in Scotland um, on estates. The terrible persecution of 
the hen harrier that has taken place and continues to take place. And it's a privilege to see these beautiful, beautiful birds ghosting, mothing, as I describe it, over the moorland on their hunt, on their hunt for sustenance. We haven't seen the marsh harrier now for for a few days, but I wanted to, to make mention of that, to celebrate the presence of this rare bird here. We know it's a male, and our fervent hope is that a female might might find him and that there might be a marsh harrier nest in the reeds. We don't have that kind of, that specific terrain that would suit marsh harriers here, exactly here, but not far away there would be. Uh, would, there would be the right conditions, we believe, for a nest. So we can only hope. It's probably wishful thinking, but it would be lovely to think that it's it might be a reality before the summer is upon us. When I was recording here last time, when I was here in the studio and, and doing a first piece of, of audio, I had... I smile because it was it was a beautiful moment and I can only record the story of it now because tragically the actual sound is lost. But I finished I, I finished the, the piece that I was doing um, quite naturally and and then I heard that close to me outside there was the song of a blackbird. And I went on to the top of the stairs just beyond the door to the studio. And wonderfully, the blackbird hadn't heard the click of the door as I opened it and came out to the top of the terrace. And there it was, literally yards above me, heralding the beginning of spring, surely. It's one of the things that that brings spring alive to us humans, the sound of thrushes and blackbirds singing so richly with such wet notes, as it were, such beautiful thickness of song. And there it was. Um, and I managed to record it in, as I stood in the open doorway of the studio, I managed to catch its song for, oh, uh, perhaps a quarter of a minute, probably not as much as half a minute. But it was a wonderful moment. It just felt a lovely, a, a, a most perfect way to, to end to end the recording and something that would have been impossible of course to to arrange to plan beforehand to anticipate and to arrange such things that wildlife cameramen wildlife recorders must be maddened by all the time that they're watching we'll say for an otter um I, having a view of the otter's hide over a matter, over a a course, over the course of three days, perhaps. And in all that time, they have 10 minutes of scurrying as an otter has dashed out to the water's edge uh, to find fish. And of course, Murphy's Law dictates that in those 10 minutes, just those 10 minutes, that was the point at which they despaired or the rain came on or they went back um, in cold and misery for some food. And that was the moment when they missed the otter. I think it's 
One has to smile ironically, but then I can smile ironically because it's not my living. Anyway, um, I can only, all I can do now is describe the moment of the blackbird and the wonder of that song. Tragically, it's gone. What I can do in finishing this, this piece today um, in the silence, the wonderful silence that we have been given, um, and we're very grateful, we're very thankful for this place where we, where we do live on the island when we think of the conditions the way that many, many millions of people are having to live their lives and reshape their lives. And ours, really, we're privileged enough to be able to go on pretty much unchanged. And that's not a bad thing to be able to say. It's an extraordinary thing. I want then to be to finish this segment of audio with a recording of my poem, Grey Geese, which was first published in in my book of poems, Wild Horses. And I had the privilege on that occasion, it's the only time it's happened, uh, with the many books of poetry that I have had published, it's the only time that I've worked with a wonderful wildlife artist by the name of John Busby, a famous wildlife artist now, who sadly passed away a few years ago. And John... Um, did the most beautiful, beautiful charcoal illustrations to these wildlife poems in Wild Horses. This then is Grey Geese, and it's it's telling the other side of the story that I have, have given today. It's talking about the wonder of the moment in autumn when those grey lag come back, when they come in their hundreds and indeed their thousands back from Mivatn, from Iceland, to the very same fields, the very same beautiful places in Scotland that they have occupied for however long, for millennia, doubtless. This, then, is Grey Geese. All night they flew over in skeins. I heard their wrangling far away, Went out to look for them long after midnight. Saw them silvered by the moonlight like waves. Flagging south, jagged and tired. Across the sleeping farms and the autumn rivers to the late fields of autumn. Even in a city I have heard them. Their noise like the rusty wheel of a bicycle. I have looked up from among the drum of engines to find them in the sky, a broken arrowhead turning south, heading for home. The Iceland summer, the long light, has run like rivers through their wings, strengthened the sinews of their flight over the whole ocean, till at last they circle, straggle down on the chosen runway of their field. They come back, to the same place, the same day, without fail. Precision instruments, a compass, somewhere deep in their souls. Thank you to Kenneth for that lovely lyrical escape to the Inner Hebrides. Kenneth will be returning with more stories from Seal later this summer. 
You can find out more about his work at his website, kennethstephen.co.uk. Thank you also to Hannah Tribe for the background recording to accompany this piece. For more articles about UK wildlife, nature writing and our countryside and the Scottish islands, head to our website, countryfile.com. And don't forget, we have a lovely print magazine too, which you can find in most big supermarkets or order from our website. And please let us know what you think about the podcast by leaving reviews and feedback on your podcast provider or by emailing me, Fergus Collins, the editor of the magazine. My email address is editor at countryfile.com. So you've been listening to the BBC Countryfile magazine podcast, produced in Bristol by Jack P. Thank you so much for listening. Goodbye for now. <laughs>